18. This morning, with God's help, we will be considering chapter 16, verses 17 through 21. Hear now the reading of God's holy inspired word. Please give it your full attention, for this is God's very word. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, and sounds and peals of thunder, and there was a great earthquake, such as there has not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island fled away, and every mountain was not found. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men, And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word and now to the preaching of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, be with us now as we consider your word. Give us minds that understand. Give us hearts that believe. Give us ears and eyes that hear and see. Lord, give us hands and feet that obey. Gracious Father, give us grace to see what you're intending to communicate to us here in these verses. I decrease that you may increase, be glorified in Christ's name, we pray. Amen. Please be seated, saints. Well, good morning. I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Welcome you on this Lord's Day Sabbath as we continue now our study through the apocalypse of John. Uh, Pastor Isaiah made a, a, a good request last week, and that was to elaborate more on what it means to stay awake, what staying awake looks like in these last days. I don't often take requests, but when it comes from Pastor Isaiah or a fellow elder, I will definitely consider it. But we will save that request for the end of our studies through Revelation. I think it will be an appropriate ending series after Revelation of what it means to stay awake. This morning, then, with God's help, we will be considering verses 17 through 21 of chapter 16. And we come to the final bowl of the wrath of God, which is, as we learned, a manifestation of the holiness of God. Last Lord's Day, we considered the sixth bowl, which was the symbolic drying up of the great river Euphrates. As we learned last week, This drying up of the great river was recognized in the history of Israel as serving to display the judgment of God at times and the deliverance of God at times. The drying of the sea is also here in Revelation meant to be an echo of the parting of the Red Sea wherein God delivered Israel through the dry land and also judged Egypt, who believed that the parting of the waters was their opportunity to destroy Israel once and for all. Egypt would make a grave and final error, or a final grave error, in choosing to pursue Israel. For in their opposition and pursuit of Israel, God swept them away with the judgment in the sea. Likewise, with this drying up of the great river Euphrates, the four angels, here's what it means. The four angels are holding back the four winds who have been commanded to release them, the four winds. The four winds are the demonic forces from all over the world, the four corners of the world. Uh, They are released, and it is a, God releasing them is a type of drying of the great river Euphrates. It's a type of parting of the Red Sea, allowing demonic forces to rush in 
into the world and spread deception throughout the world in order to oppose and persecute the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, for what purpose? Uh, Why is God, why has God uh, removed the four winds, uh, removed the the barrier to the four winds, those angels that were keeping demonic forces back? Why has God removed those protective angels, as it were? Well, both for deliverance and for judgment. Saints, Satan, his antichrist, and those who have taken the mark of the beast are deceived now. They are deceived into pursuing and opposing, persecuting the church of Christ. The kings of the east, which is last week, last, we discovered last week, um, standard Old Testament language for nations who seek to oppress the people of God. They have gathered to make war against the church right now. They gather on the symbolic Mount of Megiddo or Harmageddon. It's the Mount of Assembly. Uh, They gather to meet those who are right now on the Mount of Assembly. Uh, They are gathering, Satan and his forces, are gathering to meet those who are right now standing on Mount Zion. Uh, Saints, you have come this morning to worship. Where are you? Hebrews will say to you, you've come to Mount Zion. They are standing there with Christ, as we saw in chapter 14, with the victorious Christ who stands on Mount Zion. Where are you? Mount Zion. And Christ is standing with whom? 144,000. We learn that this is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ from all ages. When you have come to worship this morning, you are not just coming with the fellow members of Reformation Bible Church. As you've come to worship this morning, you are among saints from all, from all time. You are among and in the presence of the heavenly host of heaven. You are in the presence of angels even now. You are on Mount Zion. And Satan and his forces, they are, they are assembling to war against you, the church. But you stand victorious already with Christ. They are uh, assembling to make war, but war has already been won because Christ is victorious. We are standing with the name of the Father, Son, filled with the Spirit upon our foreheads. And just as Satan attempts to destroy the people of God, just as Satan seeks to pursue the people of God, the seventh angel is called upon by... uh, you should go through, and, and now that this, um, my mind has at least been illumined to angels and their work, read through the Gospels. My family and I are reading through Matthew right now. See how many times God sends his angel to both judge and deliver. So the seventh angel pours out the seventh bowl. It is the final bowl of the wrath of God. It has been stored up for the day, the final day of judgment. Just as Pharaoh and his army sought to destroy Israel, only to be swept away by the sea, so it will be with Babylon. In this, God brings forth both judgment and deliverance. And now this morning, we shall see with God's help, uh, the seventh and final bowl. And how what we have learned already carries over into what we are continuing to learn. They're not disconnected. Let me also say this. The seventh bowl carries on into the um, 17th and 18th chapter of the book of Revelation. So while we are reading of the seventh bowl, we are going to see uh, intricacies and, and further descriptions in the 17th and 18th chapter of Revelation. With this final bowl. The words from the throne, Gagonin, are announced. It is done. For in this seventh bowl, the wrath of God is complete. Two points this morning for your and my consideration. Two points, just two. Number one, fourfold cosmic destruction. Fourfold Cosmic destruction. Uh, 
it would be helpful if your scriptures were out and you can take glances at them because I'm going to be referencing verses 17 through 21 throughout both points. Uh, The Apostle John receives the vision of the seventh and final bowl of of the wrath of God, God's wrath, which is the manifestation of his holiness. And as we have learned, plagues one through six take place in a cyclical manner, in cycles. Plagues one through six. Um, plagues one through six, that is the bowl. Uh, trumpets one through six. Seals one through six, one through six. All of these take place in cycles throughout this inter-advent age. In these last days, these six, whether they be sealed, trumpets, or bowls, they are taking place in cyclical, in a cyclical manner, in a, in a, in manners that are, um, cycled in various places throughout the world at various times throughout this entire age, which is called the inter-advent age or these last days. Now, when it comes to the seventh seal, the seventh trumpet and the seventh bowl, all of these sevens always happen at the end. Uh, seven is always going to be the completion of all these things. Eventually, but there's going to be a building up and increasing in, but then a final of these last things. Seven, as you know, is the number of completion. John sees the seventh angel pouring out the seventh bowl upon the world. And, and here's what comes with this seventh bowl. Listen now. <clears throat> Flashes of lightning. Sounds and peals of thunder. A great earthquake. Um, John says, such like an earthquake like mankind has never seen before in all of its existence. And all of this culminates in a world demolishing hailstorm. Um, John says the stones of hail weigh over Weigh a hundred pounds and more. You've seen droplets of hail and I, oh, it, I'm being hit by hail right now. One hundred pound hailstones. Now at this point, I think it's important for us to ask this question. Is this only meant to be taken symbolically or is this meant to be taken literally? Since we know that one of the rules of this apocalyptic book is that it is a book of symbols and must therefore then be interpreted symbolically. So then, how are we to interpret the lightning, thunder, earthquake, and hail, uh, literally or symbolically? Well, we have addressed this way back in the sixth chapter, Uh, but let's give a little bit more attention to what we are seeing here. Some scholars point that what this passage speaks of, it speaks of literally. Meaning, there will literally be these cosmic displays of destruction. And they will use passages like Exodus chapter 9 and verse 18. I will send a very heavy hail, such as has not been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded upon until now. Using this to point to something that would happen in the end. Uh, Exodus chapter, I think, yes, 9 and verse 24. So there was hail and fire and flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very severe, such as not had been seen in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. Those who look at Revelation 16 say if, if it If it happened literally to Israel, why would it not literally happen to the entire world? Haggai chapter 2 and verse 6. In a little while, God says, I will shake heaven and earth and the sea and the dry land. Isaiah 13, 13. Therefore, uh, will the heavens tremble and the earth be shaken from its place? As at the fury of the Lord of hosts in the days of his burning anger, which would be the final judgment. This is Isaiah 13, 13. Uh, many other texts, Isaiah 29 and 6. Other texts, Ezekiel 38 and 19. And many more, actually, are used as proof text for a literal, listen to this, worldwide 
earthquake that literally levels all of creation. Uh, we've heard about an earthquake recently, haven't we, in Turkey? Uh, the death toll is rising. Worldwide earthquake. The prophet Zechariah was given a vision of the return of Christ, wherein his feet would, as he returns, be planted on Mount the Mount of Olives. And when his feet are planted on the Mount of Olives, the mountain would split in two and there would be a worldwide earthquake. Speaking of the return of Christ, planting his feet on Mount the Mount of Olives and the world shakes. Revelation 8, John saw in the seventh seal that brought about the first um, peals of th- our first peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning culminating in a great earthquake. Such as the world has never seen before. Revelation 8. In Revelation 11, John hears the seventh and final trumpet, which ignites um, our second look at the flashes of lightning, sounds and peals of thunder, uh, and a great earthquake, accompanied this time now by a storm of hail. Saints, will there be such a violent Literal, violent, worldwide, final day on the earth as we know it, kind of earthquake and events. Let me just say, it is very, very possible, yes, that the final judgment of God could literally be accompanied by unimaginable, worldwide, flashes of light. Anybody like lightning when you go out? Do you like lightning or do you kind of run outside, run inside and look at it from, from the, look at it outside from the inside, yes? Uh, do any of you love the, the, the crackling sounds and peals of thunder? Some of us love it. We think it's really, really cool. Uh, it will be unbearable, it seems. Unbearable peals of thunder. There are times, ooh, that was a good one when we hear those, those cracks. Ooh, that was a loud one, right? Uh, imagine, the, the kind of peal and the kind of sounds of thunder that will cause you to to pray to God, to cry out to God no more. And it is very possible that there will be a, a great entire world-shaking earthquake. World-shaking. Not just, wow, I feel sorry for the people in Turkey, but you you're not just feeling it here. It's uh, dramatically shaking everywhere followed by a hail, a worldwide hailstorm of hailstones th- that weigh a hundred pounds. <clears throat> it is very possible that all of those things could happen. But we will not dive into the restoration of the earth today. We will. But we are told throughout the scriptures that the earth as we know it will one day be burned with fire and it will make way for a restoration of of God's new creation. We'll address that in chapter 21. But for today, literal worldwide earthquake, if you were an 80s and 90s kid like me, you you constantly heard of the big one. Growing up, especially in California, you, you constantly would hear of this, the big one's coming. The big one experts were always saying the big one's coming. California is going to fall into the Pacific Ocean. It's going to crumble into the sea. If you grew up in the 80s and 90s like I did. Is that kind of, is that kind of judgment worldwide? Is it possible? Here's what we want to say. Yes, it is possible. Now, we also need to ask ourselves, why do we believe it's possible? For the simple fact that we believe that God created the heavens and the earth with the words, let there be. And out of nothingness comes things that God has called into being. If we believe that, that God can call things into existence that, that were not, and yet and by Him calling them into, into existence, all things came to be, then we would be not truly people of the book if we did not believe that God could destroy the entire world through earthquake and hail, uh, through flashes of lightning and thunder. We are people of the book. Uh, we would um, we would be wrong to believe that it was outside of the power and capability of God to send forth such 
worldwide destruction, wouldn't we? Our Lord says, and take this to uh, while we are praying for those who have, have suffered devastate, who have suffered through the earthquake. Take this, though, to that path, to that experience. Isaiah 45, the Lord says the one he is the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating disaster. God says, I am the one who does all these things. In another version, God says, I create calamities. If we believe that God rained down literal judgment, hail, fire, and brimstone upon Sodom and Gomorrah, then we must believe that it is possible for God to do the exact same thing at the end of the world. We must. If we believe that God sent forth ten plagues of judgment upon the nation of Egypt, then we must believe that God can send forth a final judgment such as mankind has never seen before. We we must believe it. John appears to be using the same kind of end-time language each time he comes to these sevens. Language is almost verbatim. Here's the only difference. It increases with intensity. Every time John comes to a seven, whether it be seal, trumpet, or bowl, the language is almost verbatim. The only difference is that it increases with intensity every single seven. The fourfold cosmic chain, uh, fourfold chain of cosmic violence, it has its precedence uh, places like Exodus 19, Psalm 77, Isaiah 29. And Esther's an interesting one to read. If you read about the dream of Mordecai, Mordecai has a very interesting dream that it, it speaks a lot like what John just said. Go home and read that. In each of these cases, they're telling of God's judgment in this intense, um, worldwide kind of manner. Revelation 4, give me an example. Revelation 4 and verse 5, there's, listen to this, lightning, rumbling, and thunder. Revelation 8 there's an earthquake added to that mix. In Revelation 11, a hailstorm is added to that mix. In Revelation 16, it's now a great earthquake. Um, such as the, in such a manner that the world has never seen anything like it. And now we're coming toward the end, aren't we? As we near the end of Revelation, some of you are ecstatic about that. 17, we've only got five chapters left. We'll get there next year, maybe. Um, at the end of Revelation, we no longer see these cycles of judgment. We won't see any more sevens. In chapter 18 and 19, all we're seeing, 17, 18, uh, all we're seeing now is, is details of judgment. There's no more sevens. It's done, as God says. The cycles have all but ended. Throughout this entire, or this inter-advent age, which is the last days, our Lord says that we will hear of, there will be wars, rumors of wars, nations will rise against nations, and there is going to be famines and earthquakes. It's not the end, God says. Listen to this, but it's trending toward the end. It's not the end, but it's trending that way. John sees these these things happening in, 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 in an increasing manner. Listen to this. He's gone from one-fourth, one-third, and now finally, one whole. It's all done. Now, we're talking about earthquake a lot. Um, it's I think it's important that we do not simply read through these cataclysmic events, nor these cataclysmic, um, world-shaking, if you will, passages that are before us, and only stand upon or only focus our attention on utter devastation of the entire world, and, and not give careful consideration to this, listen to this now, um, the symbolism throughout this book and what is intended by God to be communicated by these violent images of judgment. If we only said the world is going to shake like we've never seen before, we're missing the point. 
Meaning, we should not major on whether or not these literal cataclysmic events are going to happen and how they will be. We should not then spend our time studying the shifting of tectonic plates in order to see uh, when exactly is this going to happen. Uh, let me see if, by studying these, this, these movements of tectonic plates, maybe I can predict when this will all take place. That is a fool's errand. If we major on that and minor on the reason why these events are taking place, then we're missing the point, right? What is God communicating to John via the images given to him by these angels through what John is seeing? Well, we're not going to be good students of God's word if we don't consider the context and how this that we're seeing, it, it relates to what we are seeing as a whole, right? The kings have gathered. The, the kings of the east are gathering. Uh, they, are, they are gathering their army to, to war against Christ and his church. They, they are um, coming to the Mount of Assembly, the Mount, to Mount Zion to make war. They're coming to the church to make war against her. Uh, they've been deceived into thinking that the church is vulnerable. The church is hopeless. That, that now is the time for the church to be destroyed. And as they prepare to pursue flashes of lightning, sounds and peals of thunder, and earthquake as has never been seen before, and massive hailstones from heaven fall and judge the wicked for their deception or for uh, their foolish thinking into believing that the church could be destroyed. That, that Christ would not save his people, just as he's done throughout all of the scriptures, that God saves his people. Just as the wicked believe that, that the church will be destroyed, God intervenes in both judgment and in deliverance. Throughout the scriptures, thunder and lightning, listen to this, are symbols of God's voice. Throughout the scriptures, thunder and lightning are symbols of the voice of God. Psalm 29, 3, the voice of the Lord is upon the waters. Listen, the glory, that's the voice of the Lord, thunders. The Lord is over many waters. God's voice is likened to thunder. In 1 Samuel 2, 10, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken into pieces. Listen to this. Out of heaven shall thunder upon them. Uh, so, so, uh, Samuel 2, 22, 14, the Lord thundered from heaven. What is the thunder, Samuel? Whoever wrote Samuel. The Most High uttered His voice. The Lord thunders from heaven. And what is that thunder? It is God speaking. When Israel stood at the base of Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19, the word is described, um, His word is described as being similar to that kind of language that John uses. When God speaks, there's thunder and lightning in, in Exodus chapter 19. In Hebrews, when God's judgment comes, when God speaks His word of judgment... It terrified them so much that they begged that God not speak another word. Thunder and lightning is connected, therefore, to God's judgment. That when God judges, it is as terrifying as thunder and lightning. We like lightning up here, but we don't like lightning when it hits our feet, do we? When it comes near us, when we go, that almost hit me. <laughs> right? When we see someone who's walking around with, with an umbrella, when there's a lightning storm, we go, get inside. You're going to get struck by lightning. Someone who's walking around with a metal pole when it's lightning outside, you would say to them, you are a fool. So it is with God's judgment. It is a terrifying moment when God gives his final verdict of judgment upon the wicked. For the fool to not turn to, for the, for a man to not turn to God when God is sending forth his final words of judgment would be just as foolish as a man walking around in a, in a lightning storm with a steel rod. It is God's final word, final verdict upon the wicked. When God speaks final judgment, it is more terrifying, more terrifying than flashes of lightning hitting you. Sounds of thunder, not up there, right here. Imagine you're hearing this. When thunder sounds, it's the echoes that you're hearing. You're, you're getting the reverberations of it. Imagine being in the middle of it. You would no longer be able to hear if you were in the middle of it. Everything that is in your mind would be totally thrown off kilter. You're only receiving echoes. The peals 
are from a distance. But when God speaks his word of judgment, it will be right in front of the wicked. Whenever the word earthquake occurs in scripture, specifically in Revelation, it denotes chaos between one kingdom and another. Specifically, it is one kingdom falling and one rising. When there is an earthquake, it is one kingdom that is shaken and it falls while the other rises in victory. Two nations are colliding in Revelation. And the result is the shaking of the world as one falls and as one rises in victory. You remember what happened when our Lord Jesus Christ yielded up his life on the cross. What took place around the world? It was darkness and there was a great earthquake. What was that earthquake? That great earthquake was the inauguration of God's kingdom and the bringing down of Satan's kingdom. It was a literal shaking, indicating a spiritual battle. But even more than that, a spiritual victory that Christ wins on the cross of Calvary. This fits with the context now, doesn't it? Nations are preparing for war. They are getting ready to to rush in. Babylon is getting ready to rush in and pursue the true Israel. And as they do, God brings forth a world-shaking, devastating judgment upon the wicked. Even those who have been seen as grand as island or grand as mountains or as beautiful as islands, even they are brought down to no reputation. God brings them to utter destruction, divides them utterly. Those men and women who are adored will be no more. Those parts of Satan's kingdom will no longer stand. The final judgment of God brings utter destruction upon the achievements of men. Like a hundred pound hailstone would utterly crush anything that stands beneath it. Could there be a final earthquake? Of course. Could there be... uh, Uh, A time when we are utterly decimated by an atomic bomb, kind of World War III bomb? Of course, yes. I might even say, why wouldn't the earth be shaken when Christ returns? My point is that if we're only giving our attention to a worldwide earthquake, we're overlooking the reason for the earthquake. Here's what it says in chapter... Babylon has fallen. Babylon the great has fallen. Yes, it shakes as it falls. But as Babylon falls, the true kingdom of God rises. And it is the only kingdom that stands forever and ever and ever. Babylon that was considered, and John will call it, the great city. The great city by the world standard of greatness, it falls. Satan's wicked kingdom will be no more. Those who have aligned themselves with Satan, they will be destroyed with their father, the devil. A city that believed it was the strongest, most prosperous, most influential, most influential, most honor, worthy of honor. And it's King Satan, that serpent of old, they will be brought down as God shakes heaven and earth in his final judgment. That's not hyperbole. That's not a fairy story. If we believe God did that in Sodom and Gomorrah, if we believe that God did that in Egypt, if we believe that God has done this throughout the ages, he will do it. And we would be fools to believe not. But it's also encouraging for the seven churches. Remember who God is speaking to. To the seven churches of of Asia Minor and and to the churches of all time. They were living in Babylon as you are but citizens of heaven. The wicked were opposing them as they are opposing you, but they will not have final word. And Matt, look, when God says it is done, God has the final word. We'll see in 17 and 18 and then a little bit in 19 that that there are seemingly more things being said, but when God brings forth his judgment, he has the final say. The final verdict comes from God, not from man. Some people think, when I stand before God, I'm going to give him peace of my mind. You have nothing to say. You will bend your knee. God says it is done. 
the church then and the church throughout the ages and the church today. And God willing, if, if God wills the church for tomorrow, take comfort in this. That as Samson shook the foundations of the kingdom of the Philistines and brought them to ruin, so God will shake the foundations of Satan's kingdom and bring it to ruin. John is encouraged to see. John sees and the church is encouraged to know. Babylon the Great was remembered before God. For what purpose? To give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. Why does God remember Babylon? He remembers their sin. Saints, be encouraged with this. If you are in Christ, God won't remember your sin. But if you are not in Christ, God will remember your sin. If you are not in Christ, you will hope that God has a bad memory. If you are not in Christ, you will hope that God is senile. If you are not in Christ, you will hope that God is a forgetful God. But Revelation says that God is so just, so holy, so righteous... That when it is time to judge the wicked, he will bring before them every single one of their sins. None of them will be forgotten. But if you are in Christ, uh, uh, let me say that again. If you are in Christ, those of you who come in and say, "I, I, I know I have sinned this week. If you are in Christ, be encouraged of this. God promises that he will remember your sin no more. That he cast them as far as east is from west and never shall the two meet if you are in Christ. Be encouraged by that. But if you are not in Christ, beware. Because God will will not forget your sin. He will bring it to your to your face, to your eyes. And you will have to give an account for every single one of the things that you have done against him. If you are not in Christ, they will reap what they have sown. That's what I think these cataclysmic events are intending to communicate. God will cause Babylon to fall. Satan and his kingdom will not stand. And God declares it is done. He brings the nation of Babylon, that kingdom of darkness, to ruin. And with the falling of Babylon comes the falling of Babylon's influence. Number two. The bowl poured out upon the air. These are all from 17 to 21. So you can look and see some things. But. John sees that the seventh bowl is poured out upon the air. The bowl being poured out on the air is once again an echo of the plagues of Egypt, specifically the plague of hail that comes from the air, right? G.K. Beale says this plague of hail, as well as all of the other plagues, could rightly be called plagues of heaven and air. Plagues of heaven and air. In Revelation 9 and 2, the fifth angel sounds his trumpet And the key to the bottomless pit is open. Now listen to this. God gives, God allows Satan. This is important. God allows Satan. We we talked about this before. God allows Satan. um, He grants him the right to have the key to the bottomless pit. With which, with, with which Satan opens and out of this emerges demonic forces like locusts. They are pouring throughout the sky. If you can imagine locusts coming out, they're not running on the ground. They're going into the sky. They're going into the air. So much are these demonic forces spreading throughout the sky that John sees that the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit, but also by the vast demonic forces that are filling the air. I'm going to say this a couple of times. There's something in the air. The sun is being darkened by the air and the smoke of the pit and Satan is using the, these demonic forces to spread deception throughout the entire world in such a way that it does this. Remember that John says the sun and the air were darkened. Satan, uh, Satan's demonic forces go out into the entire world in such a, a vast manner that it blinds men from seeing the sun. They are going out in such a a vast manner that it blinds men from seeing the light. Specifically, who is Christ our Lord? Um, Who gave Satan the key to do such a thing? Did Satan have the authority to just take the keys from God? No. Well, Satan has given these keys, isn't he? He's given the keys to, to deceive. God has allowed Satan to go forth and to deceive nations. Um, you will wonder about this in chapter 20 of Revelation. God has bound Satan and then God releases Satan for a thousand years. And we go, whoa, wait a minute. 
I thought this was all over. That's for people who are seeing these things sequentially. John is going back to what we are seeing here in the inter-advent age and saying Satan's released now. He's released to deceive. And in these last days, Satan's deception is in the air. His influence to follow him, it's in the air. You know these. Ephesians 2, 2. Satan is the prince of the power of the, the air. And you go, what? The air. He is influencing men and women. Listen to this. Boys and girls. To follow his deceptive lies. He's called the God of this world. In that men and women, boys and girls, give themselves over to him in worship. That, uh, that which exalts Satan's kingdom, which is it's essentially self-exaltation, is, is in the air. There is a culture that, figuratively speaking, is demonically in the air. It seems to go here and there like the wind. And it's all throughout the world. There is a demonic influence that is upon the minds and hearts of men. That is evidenced in the boys and girls. That is evidenced in their actions. Their deeds are evil and their hands reveal their wicked hearts. Uh, last week, we considered our Lord foretelling what the world will be like when he returns. Remember that? We said, because our Lord said, it will be as it was in the days of Noah. Well, we asked the question, what, what were the days of Noah like? We learned this, that the days of Noah are simply this, a disregard for God. It's not um, marrying, that's not a sin. Giving in marriage, that's not a sin. It's not working in the field, it's not grinding at the mill. None of those things are, are a sin. It's doing all of those things without a regard for God. It's uh, marrying without a regard for God. Giving your families in marriage without a regard to God. Working without regard to God. Without living out and pursuing beatitude. Without living out and pursuing a life that will eventually culminate in the beatific vision. I will see God and there I will behold His face and I will receive a, a fullness of joy. Um, Christ says, my peace that you, that my peace I give to you, not like the world gives to you, but my peace. We will have the God kind of peace. One that never ends. We get peace in spurts. We get joy in spurts. But in heaven, we will have it fully and eternally. Amen. The days of Noah are, I don't want what God offers in order to achieve that. I'll find it my own way. I'll find it my own way. The days of Noah... Were people violent toward Noah when he was a preacher of righteousness? We don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But we do know that we that they disregarded his message. They disdained the truth. Because for nearly 100 years, if not 100 years, they did not heed Noah's warning of coming judgment and the call to repent. Therefore, they disdained the message. They may not physically oppose it, but by disregarding it, you disdain it. You ever walk down streets? My, my son and I were in LA yesterday. You ever walk downtown and you hear people and they're 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 on the street corner preaching something, saying something, and you kind of just like you do this kind of thing where, where your 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 head is down and you're just going, you're kind of putting your head down so they don't see you for whatever reason. Like you're not acknowledging them, right? That's what a disregard for truth is. Looks like. I don't know what they're doing, but when we do stuff, that's what a disregard for truth is. It is giving it no mind, paying it no mind, and in paying it no mind, you disdain it. If you paid it mind, you would give your mind to it. Therefore, you would give attention to it. You would give time to it, value to it. Satan's deception was the fullness of peace, joy, and satisfaction could be found in pursuing whatever your heart desires. You ever say that to your kids? You can have whatever your heart desires. Don't tell them that. <laughs> Satan's deception is you can have whatever your heart's desire is as long as it's contrary to God's word. Go get it. You won't find it in God. God is trying to hold you back. He's trying to keep you from goodness. He's trying to keep you from fullness of joy and fullness of peace. You'll find it in pursuing what you want, not what he wants. 
Last week I said, Satan's deception is not this. Satan's, Satan's deception is not, hey, come, let's die together. Anybody want to go do that? Anybody Sign me up. Anybody want to do that? No. Uh, many might believe that their denial of Christ and their, and their, by their actions is sending them to hell. But even many don't take hell seriously. Because they've been deceived into thinking that seeking their satisfaction is what is what is most important in their existence in life. Whatever makes them happy. God's withholding good from you. He's unloving. He's unjust. He's, he's not good. If he was, he would let you have whatever you want. We tell people that the heart is deceitful and wicked and causes us to pursue that which does not glorify God. The simple man says, glorify God. Why should I do that? He isn't good. If he was, then why all the evil? Why the, the, the body count continuing to rise in Turkey if God was good? No, I'll pursue what makes me happy. I'll pursue what satisfies me. And whatever happens after this life, come with me. Satan's deception is in the air. Satan, this is important. Satan was not and is not making people sin. Are you with me on that? You, you get, Satan is not, was not, and is not, he's not making people sin. Satan cannot harden your heart. Nor is he able to soften your heart. He both does not have power nor jurisdiction over man's heart. God is sovereign over a man's heart. And it is God who allowed man to pursue sin. And in pursuing sin, man pursues the hardness of his heart. Man hardens his heart as he pursues sin, and God allows it. Therefore, God is hardening a man's heart by allowing man to pursue his own sin. God is, is essentially taking his hands off of men and saying, okay, go. And man will continue to go. Man will continue to pursue his sin unless God uh, sovereignly and graciously intervenes and says no more. Even the sin that man pursues is, is to a certain degree, held back by God. Man, we've heard this, man is not as wicked as he could be. Man is not as evil as he could be. It is God who takes the heart of stone and gives man a new heart. Through the preaching of the gospel, through the work of the spirit, man softens man's heart to long for God. So Satan can't mold man's heart for good or for ill. But he can lure man's heart. Come on. My, my two-year-old right now. Um, I can lure him into putting his pacifier into his crib, which is the most cutest thing you'll ever see anyways. I can lure him because he right now knows that if he goes and does that, he gets gummies. So there's an there's a luring. Go, go put your pacifier in your crib, right? Oh, and then he goes. And when he comes back, he knows there's a, there's a little bag of gummies waiting for him. I'm luring him into something, right? I'm luring him into following my, my, my command by saying, I, I give, I'll give you this. He can, Satan can present deceptive desires that can cause man to run after Satan and the promises that Satan said, he says he will give if you go pursue those things. If you pursue this, it will bring you this. But Satan never makes good on his promises. It's like um, chasing someone down the hall. And, and just when you think you caught them, they're going down the next hall. And you're looking and you go down the next hall. And just when you think you caught them, they're going down. Same kind of thing with truth. Um, when you're pursuing truth, there's this kind of pursuit of it. that you never, seem to, you never seem to get it all. Well, Satan does that with what he promises when you pursue him in simple manners. Keep coming. Come on. It, you've almost got it. promises empty treasures that's the deception in the air saints skin of fruit with no substance that's the deception of the air saints he's allowed to have a certain freedom to do this to lure god allows satan to lure men's heart away by taking a mark by believing in the deception in the air they pledge allegiance and give themselves wholeheartedly into the empty belief that Satan and what he offers can satisfy their longing for fullness of joy. And he can't. 
It's in the air. Recently, I was told of and shown a short clip of a, of a performance. Let me slow down. Of a performance at this year's Grammy Award show. Maybe you saw it. Maybe you didn't. The scene is meant to be a, a depiction of a celebration of in hell. The song sung is titled Unholy. It is sung by a homosexual and a transsexual. These two are dressed like devils and their backup dancers are dressed like demons as they parade in hell with various fires exploding in their background. The Grammy performance has millions of views on YouTube and their official video has a hundred over 130 million views. There's something in the air. I did not watch the video, only the short clip, and then to find the numbers. But here's also what I did not see. I did not see the audience who were there so appalled at the outright display of demonic activity right before their eyes, celebrated. I did not see the audience get up and leave because they were so appalled by such a display of evil. I I did not see people running out of that building for fear that God would bring down that building in judgment and all who are in it. There is something in the air. And it's increasing, isn't it? Let me say to you, it's not just with young people. The older my God, the, the young people, they need to really, you need to watch out too. Don't think that because you're older, that you are somehow exempt from being deceived. That you are somehow exempt from the influence that is around you. It may not be the same influence as the the younger ones, but Satan's not going to leave you alone because you're older. He's not Hitler that says, I'm just going to go after the youth. He's going to go after all of youth. All of you. All of you. There is no person, there is no soul that Satan would not have. He does, I'm too old. He doesn't care about me. Of course he does. Now the deception is, where will you find security? Now the deception is, how will you provide? Now the deception is, uh, how will you eat today? Who's going to look after you? There's deception there. Don't be fooled into thinking that, that God, that Satan only wants the younger ones. He wants all of you. It's spreading throughout the world in an increasing manner. Growing disregard for the preachers of righteousness and for the God that they preach who calls all men to repent of sin. A growing acceptance of Satan's mark. Second Timothy 3 1. Realize, realize this, Paul says to Timothy, in the last days, difficult times will come. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, slanderers. Disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, although they deny his power, avoid such men. For by your association with them, you are easily susceptible to the deception that's in the air. They've been deceived by it. What did Jesus say in the last sermon? Beware. Stay awake. Sermon last week, keep your head. But the, the phrase, I could be wrong about this. I heard it this past week. Keep, keep your head. It simply means this. When you fall asleep, some of you know this uh, sometimes maybe when I preach, there's a tendency to do this. There's a tendency to keep your head means keep your head up. That's where the phrase is. It finds its root. Don't fall asleep. Keep your head up. When Paul tells Timothy, keep your head, it's it's saying, stay awake. Don't do that. Stay awake. Stay awake. Keep your head. Hold it up if you have to. You will stay awake. (laughs) The seven churches of Asia Minor knew that there was a growing animosity against Christians in Asia Minor. 
Persecution was was increasing, becoming more widespread. Soon after Revelation was written, the church would experience some of the worst persecution in a localized area in the history of the church after Christ rose from the dead. Know this. God's wrath will be poured out on the air. Satan's influence will not last. God will rain down judgment on all those who blaspheme his name in such in such outright ways and give no regard to his holiness. The great city will be severely crushed, split in two. God will bring the influence of sin, the sinner, and the one who lures people to sin. He will bring every single one of those down. Those who parade in their sin and in their rebellion against God on world stages, they will be silenced. Their influence will be no more. There will be no more applause for men. No more YouTube views. What? And we will be there. We weren't at that show, but we'll be at this one. We will be amening God's judgment. We will participate in that final judgment and we will say with God, yes, righteous and true are you. Righteous and true are you. Description of Satan's final judgment will come in the 20th chapter. The mountains will be laid bare. The islands no more. And with this, there will be no more opportunities to repent and turn and be saved. The first advent, advent culminated in Christ's atoning death for sin. The, the, um, which initiated the call for disciples to go out into the world, preach the gospel that all men would turn and be saved. Today is the day of salvation, saints. Today is the salvation of, of, today is the day of salvation for all, all who hear. Today is the day. Return to, return to Christ and live. If you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Like Israel did when they wandered through the desert. Today, turn to Christ. Come today. For the second advent of Christ. It won't be an opportunity to be saved. It will be time for final judgment. And it will be poured out upon the air. Sin and its influence will be no more. Men will give an account for their deeds. If you are in Christ, you will be judged according to the deeds of Christ, which are perfectly righteous. They shall be credited to you and you will be saved. Paul will say, Paul says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But for those who reject the person and work of Christ, you will be judged for your deeds. And they will be counted as filthy rags before God. For those who do not turn to Christ, the words of Christ from his throne, it is done. It's a dreadful saying. Hailstones fall and you won't repent. You will continue to curse God until your final demise before you stand before the Holy One and you will reverence him. (laughs) You will reverence him. And repentance will not be granted to you on that day. Salvation will will not be granted to any on that day. Today is the day of salvation. Repent and live. You already know this. But you and and I need to hear it again and again and again. Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes. So that they will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. Don't give in to the influence in the air. Don't give in to it. It will lead you nowhere. Okay, I'm going to speak to the young people really quick and I'm going to close. Speaking to a person this past week, I did, uh, I, I was cleaning their carpet, but I was their fourth grade, I was the, their daughter's fourth grade teacher. Their daughter's now, I'm old. I was their fourth grade teacher. Their daughter's 23 years old now. Graduated from college. And for whatever reason, her, um, her mother wanted to FaceTime me to her daughter while I was doing carpet. Hi, you know, all that kind of stuff. But her mother was telling me that the friends that she grew up with, the friends that she tried to keep relationship with, they were going in different ways. And she wanted to hold those relationships so tight. But she found out that when she got out of high school, they all went their separate ways. The friends that they were trying to impress for all those years, the friends that they were trying to keep peace with all those years, they don't even talk to them anymore. The ones that were so influential in their lives, the one that they were trying to impress for so long, they don't even talk to them anymore. Don't give in to the influence. Don't give in to what's in the air. 
it won't lead you anywhere. And then there will come a time when you go, why did I, tr- why, why was I trying so hard for them? I don't know whether or not she's a Christian nowadays or not, but I know this. She put a lot of time and energy and effort into trying to make people happy. Pursue God. Pursue what God commands. Give yourselves over time, energy, and effort. Give yourself over to God. You will reap a wonderful reward if you do. Our Lord will return at any moment. Keep your mind. Stay awake. Keep your head. Be ready. Let us pray. Gracious Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, help us now to heed your warnings, to keep your commands, because we know that your commands are good. Help us, Lord, to honor and to glorify you in all that we do.